From Dick Keller to Charles Dick to Chief Justice Roger Tawney, today we will be discussing all the dicks that have shaped the right to keep and bear arms. Hey, greetings, and welcome back once again to Categorical Imperatives. Uh, as always, I am Lockie and Liberal, and I want to thank you all so much for being here with me today. Uh, for anyone who may be new to this program and is unfamiliar with what I do, uh, welcome. This is a podcast where we will be using legal theory and moral philosophy to discuss current events as they relate to various aspects of law, politics, and culture. Now, the uh, recent killing of George Floyd has certainly elicited a number of responses, uh, including calls for police reform. And while that is a sentiment with which I wholeheartedly agree, uh, generally speaking, I cannot get behind the proposals that I have been hearing put forward. So as far as police reform goes, I've been asking myself a question that I often ask myself that leads to episodes of this show. Uh, that is, what answers can be found in constitutional law and in the moral philosophy of the framers and jurists who crafted those laws? And the answer I got back is an answer, is an answer I often would get back, which is, uh, you know, quite a lot. Now, uh, to say uh, a means of police reform might be a uh, greater acceptance of and knowledge about the right to keep and bear arms as well as of the general militia power may seem a bit uh, unorthodox, but I do believe that a look at the meaning and the evolution of these concepts can help illustrate how and why they are uh, powerful tools to protect against oppression. Uh, and given our circumstances at this moment, I think we may be uh, well suited to have a discussion with people who would generally uh, be hostile to a discussion about gun rights and about the general militia power. Uh, and I am optimistic that we are hopefully at a place right now where we can have a conversation which will move past uh, the normal objections one usually hears to this particular topic. Think of the children. Won't somebody please think of the children? No, stop. Think of the children. Think of the children. <laughs> Won't somebody please think of the children? Now, something that I have found very interesting uh, recently uh, was that when we had the lockdown protests going on in places, I, I think most notably like Michigan, but certainly a lot of other cities around, um, Michigan's the state, but you know what I mean. Uh, anyways, uh, the point being uh, that even though these protests were drawing huge crowds uh, of actually peaceful protesters who just happened to be armed, uh, we heard uh, those in attendance being accused of uh, being everything from neo-Nazis uh, to neo-Confederates, probably neo-racists, whatever that is. I just made it up. Uh, or, I, I mean, just generally confrontational right-wing extremists who are trying to kick off the boogaloo. 
Hey everybody, the Yankee Marshall here coming at you once again from the Boogaloo Planning Center or the Neckbeard Bunker, as we like to call it, coming to you with some news about the Boogaloo. I think all of you are aware we have been planning our revolution. We are going to take this country back from our oppressors through force if necessary. We are going to take it back for freedom-loving people. Uh, but we've been running into some scheduling issues. Now, a lot of you probably are already aware that we had originally scheduled it for Saturday, August 22nd. That's when the bloodshed was going to begin. But turns out we've had a lot of our members telling us that August is actually peak vacation season. And there's going to be a lot of people out there at the capitals, uh, local landmarks, uh, popular city streets who are wanting to take pictures for their vacation. And if we're in between them and what they're taking pictures of, you know, fighting the government, that's going to ruin a lot of people's pictures, and that's rude. Uh, you know, and revolution doesn't have to be rude. So we decided we're not going to do that. We're not going to inconvenience these people. They already paid for tickets, you know, airplane tickets. They paid for hotels. So we're going to reschedule. Uh, now, in some instances, uh, the same people who were making those accusations about these actually peaceful protesters uh, are, uh, following the death of George Floyd, actually beginning to take uh, often an active and personal role in their own self-defense and to protect their communities in general in situations where they feel uh, they that the police are unable to protect them. And I think this is because they are uh, beginning to recognize on at least a visceral level uh, something that I uh, believe the 2A community has understood on both a visceral and a philosophical level for some time. And that is why I want to talk about the uh, history of gun rights and the right to bear arms in our laws, uh, as well as to a lesser degree, the general militia power, because I believe uh, to understand this history is to understand the philosophical importance of the right to keep and bear arms uh, and why one might want to uh, embrace the Second Amendment. Hi, I'm Petey the Pistol. Say, do you ever get lonely? Yes. Me too. Hold me. If you squeeze me, I make bad people go away. Now, the principal animating purpose uh, of the Second Amendment was to prevent uh, the government, uh, the new federal government, uh, from adapting public disarmament schemes that would make it easier for the government to oppress the people. However, protecting the right uh, of the people to protect itself against oppression, however, is a broader concept and was for them a broader concept than merely protecting themselves from government oppression. Uh, there is another kind of oppression uh, that goes well back into English common law, and you can find it uh, at least as far back as Blackstone, as evidenced here, where he says, uh, to vindicate these natural rights when actually violated or attacked, the subjects of England are entitled first to the regular administration and free course of justice uh, in the courts of law, next to the right of petitioning the king and parliament for redress of grievance, and lastly, the right of having and using arms for self-preservation and defense. These auxiliary rights, uh, these auxiliary subordinate rights, uh, which serve principally as barriers to protect and maintain inviolate the three great and primary rights 
of personal security, personal liberty, and private property. And that having arms for their defense is a public allowance under due restriction of the natural right of resistance and self-preservation when the sanctions of society and laws are found insufficient to restrain the, the violence of oppression. And this is a sentiment we also see uh, closely related in the minds of the framers as well, such as here with Sam Adams. Uh, how little do these persons attend? Oh, it, it's worth noting that this article here from the Boston Gazette by Sam Adams, he had just finished quoting that exact same passage from Blackstone that I just read to you a moment ago. And this is him now uh, adding on to that. So he says, uh, how little do those persons attend to the rights of the Constitution, calling upon the inhabitants to provide themselves with arms for their defense at any time, but more especially when they had reason to fear uh, that there would be necessity of the means of self-preservation against the violence of oppression. Everyone knows that the exercise of military power is forever dangerous to civil rights. And we have had recent instances of violence that have been offered to private subjects. Such violences are no more than might have been expected from military troops. A power which is apt enough at all times to take a wanton lead, even when in the midst of civil society. But more especially so uh, when they are led to believe uh, that they are become necessary to preserve peace and good order. But there are some persons who would, if possible, they could persuade the people never to make use of their constitutional rights or terrify them from doing it. So essentially, uh, what we're talking about here is an idea in which uh, people can not only be oppressed by government, but people can be oppressed because the government fails to adequately protect them from other sources of oppression. Now, in Blackstone's time, this could have included uh, threats from highwaymen on the King's Highway uh, to the founders like Sam Adams. Uh, this may have included, uh, you know, marauders on the frontier or Indian raids occurring on borderlands. Uh, currently, I think we can actually see examples of both concepts of oppression in what recently happened around the death of George Floyd. First, we have Floyd himself being killed at the hands of the state, uh, despite being unarmed, not resisting, and being in a position where he was entirely incapable of harming anyone. Now, contrast this uh, with those who showed up at what were, I'm, I'm sure, what were at least intended initially to be legitimate peaceful protests, uh, where people who uh, came in and chose to uh, loot stores uh, and destroy homes and buildings. And I believe this was because they understood the circumstances were ones in which the police would have been incapable of stopping them. So, when the government disarms the civilian population, uh, it not only makes the people more vulnerable to oppression by government, uh, it also means oppression from criminals from whom the government does not adequately protect them. 
Now, uh, my first uh, series of videos, for those of you who have been watching the show long enough, uh, will remember that they were about uh, the Founders' Second Amendment. All right, we're done. You think the language in the Second Amendment is clear enough? You know, about the right to bear arms? Of course it's clear. Every American has the right to hang a pair of bear arms on their wall. How could that possibly be misconstrued? All right, fantastic then. Uh, and so I will be linking to uh, a playlist of those videos above if you guys want to go watch them. If you haven't seen them yet, I recommend them. I, I, I think they were very well done. Uh, and I'm, of course, speaking entirely objectively. Uh, but because I have, have touched on that aspect, um, today where I would like to pick up, pick up is where that series uh, left off. Uh, talking about this right uh, with as as the changes to our statutes and our constitution and in our courts have shaped the right to keep and bear arms and the militia uh, since 1791. And so here, uh, just briefly, is an outline of what we will be talking about. We will be starting out looking at Dred Scott v. Sanford, moving on to U.S. v. Cruikshank. Uh, we'll then be talking about the update to the Militia Act, which is known as the Militia Act of 1903. Uh, then moving on to U.S. v. Miller. Uh, and then I don't know if we'll have enough time in today's video or if this will have to be a separate video put out tomorrow. Uh, but we'll also be getting into m more recent cases. The ones that most people are probably most likely to be familiar with, which is District of Columbia v. Heller and McDonald v. Chicago. So... First up, we will be talking about Dred Scott. First up, we have Dred Scott v. Sanford. Now, many people don't think of Dred Scott as a Second Amendment case because that wasn't the purpose of the suit at all, but it will be several uh, statements made obiter dictum by Chief Justice Roger Tawney in his uh, final ruling on the case that will indeed make this case pivotal to the evolution of the right to keep and bear arms following the passage of the 14th Amendment. So, the Dred Scott case starts, of course, with Scott and his wife, who traveled with their owner, John Stanford, from Missouri. They went to an army outpost at Fort Snelling in modern-day Minnesota, and then later went on to Illinois, both of which were free territories at the time. This was before returning to Missouri, at which point Scott asked a Missouri state court to declare his family emancipated by virtue of their presence in a free territory. Now, Scott initially uh, won his case as a Missouri state law declared that a slave was emancipated by traveling to a free territory or state. However, that ruling was overturned by the Missouri Supreme Court. Scott then sued his owner, John Sanford, under what is known as diversity jurisdiction, uh, which is where a federal court can, uh, can pursue a dispute between citizens of two different states. Uh, it was eventually appealed all the way up to the United States Supreme Court. And the dick who kicked over this particular hornet's nest was Chief Justice Roger Taney, the fourth Chief Justice of the United States. Now, fun fact, uh, this party animal happens to be the great-grandfather of the Honorable Judge Elias Smales. Danny, there's a lot of, uh, well, badness in the world today. I see it in court every day. 
I've sentenced boys younger than you to the gas chamber. Didn't want to do it. Felt I owed it to them. The most important decision you can make right now is where do you stand for, Danny? <clears throat> Goodness or badness? Now, in the Supreme Court opinion, uh, Chief Justice Taney, writing for the court, made two rulings. The first was that the Missouri Compromise was unconstitutional. He said that a slave was a man's property, and he was free to take him wherever he pleased, including into a free state or free territory. This, of course, made compromise all but impossible, and eventually brought on the Civil War. But secondly, Taney ruled that the court had no jurisdiction over Dred Scott's suit anyway. If you remember, Scott sued under diversity jurisdiction. But Taney ruled Dred Scott was not a citizen of his state or of the United States, nor was any free black. He reasoned that the framers could not have possibly intended to give free blacks the rights, uh, or as he referred to them, the privileges and immunities of citizenship. And he even went on to list what some of those rights would be if they were to in indeed enjoy the rights of citizenship. And this is where we get into the obiter dictum statements that he makes, which are pertinent to the issue at hand. He said some of those rights would include the protections in the Bill of Rights. For example, the right to have political meetings, a right to freedom of speech, the ability to move about freely and unencumbered, and to keep and carry arms wherever they went. So essentially, uh, his ruling amounted to... You'll get nothing and like it. Now, uh, this had some unintended consequences, uh, beginning with the Civil War, uh, which led, of course, not only to the eventual ab abolition of slavery, uh, but also to the enlistment and the arming of black troops. And Scott's case was eventually overturned, but not by the Supreme Court. It took the Civil War and then the passage of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. Now, the Reconstruction Congress took measures uh, under the Enforcement Clause of the 13th Amendment to guarantee this concept of citizenship. Uh, first, they passed uh, the Civil Rights Act of 1866, uh, which still survives today under Title 42 of the U.S. Code, subsection 1981A, which provides, quote, all persons within the jurisdiction of the United States shall have the same right in every state and territory, the full and equal benefit of all laws and proceedings for the security of persons and property, both real and personal, as are enjoyed by white persons, white citizens, excuse me. Um, second, Congress also passed uh, the Freedmen's Bureau Act, also passed in 1866, uh, which further protected certain rights, including uh, the right to have the full and equal benefit of all laws and proceedings, to sue and be parties, to make and enforce contracts, and to, and to all laws concerning personal liberty and personal security, including the constitutional right to keep and carry arms wherever they go. Now, uh, John Bingham, who was the draftsman of the 14th Amendment, explained that this provision would enumerate all the same rights and privileges that were enumerated in the Civil Rights Act. Thus, today's Section 1981A guarantees 
the substantive constitutional right to keep and bear arms. This act is applicable in both the states as well as the district. Uh, I think another way you could put this is that uh, our founders' uh, fears were that when arms are outlawed, only the central government will have arms. I think you could say the 14th Amendment and Reconstruction vision was when arms are outlawed, only the Klan will have arms. And I, I, I think it's fair to say, really, that our nation's uh, oldest and most successful gun control advocacy group has been the KKK. Uh, this is, uh, of course, why during Reconstruction, uh, blacks could not trust local police to protect them from private violence. Is the police and the Klan were often the same thing. And this carries forward to today uh, in the uh, common assertion, I guess you could say, uh, the assertion that when arms are outlawed, only police and criminals will have guns. And so I, I guess if we can take uh, an immediate lesson uh, from the George Floyd killing uh, in this particular light of law uh, is that oppression from not only government, but oppression from violence from which the government is sometimes unable to protect you uh, is not some kind of uh, fear-inducing, pants-shitting NRA talking point. Uh, it is a recognition of an indisputable existential threat uh, which can show up at any time in any place in history. Now, speaking of indisputable existential threats, uh, our next case we will be covering is U.S. v. Crookshank. All right, up next we have United States v. Crookshank. Now, the facts of Crookshank are pretty gruesome. Uh, in 1872, competing factions of the Democratic and Republican parties uh, had both claimed to have won the office of judge and sheriff in Grand Parish, Louisiana. In March 1873, a Republican faction of African-American soldiers seized the courthouse in Colfax, Louisiana. They were armed with the rifles that they had carried as Union soldiers. Uh, 150 white militiamen attacked the courthouse. The armed militiamen were unable to overcome the armed resistance of the freedmen inside and to, to, uh, to breach the courthouse. Uh, so they instead decided to uh, set fire to it and essentially smoke the freedmen out. Now, more than 100 freedmen were shot and killed as they fled the inferno, even after they had surrendered to the militia. This slaughter became known as the Colfax Massacre. Now, William Crookshank was one of the lynchers. Uh, he was prosecuted in federal court. Uh, the indictment alleged that he had violated the victim's constitutional rights, namely the First Amendment right to peaceably assemble and the Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms. Uh, but this was under the Privileges and Immunities Clause of the 14th Amendment, which is why they could hold him uh, accountable for a state crime in a federal court. Now, four decades earlier, uh, Chief Justice John Marshall had declared uh, in the 1833 case, Baron v. Baltimore, that the Federal Bill of Rights only limited Congress's power. So, under this case, the First and Second Amendment would not have affected a state's police power. 
but was Barron still good law following the ratification of the 14th Amendment? Well, Representative John Bingham, very clearly during the congressional debates, suggested that it would not be. However, the Supreme Court disagreed. Chief Justice Waite wrote the majority opinion in Crookshank. He found that the states were still not bound to protect the individual rights found in the first eight amendments, even after the 14th Amendment's ratification despite the Privileges and Immunities Clause, uh, as described by John Bingham, uh, as protecting uh, these enumerated rights in the Constitution. Uh, now, next here, I want to play a, a clip from a constitutional law scholar, Randy Barnett, uh, where he is talking about the implications of Cruikshank on the 14th Amendment, because he will be uh, alluding to a point that we will be discussing a little bit later on uh, in relation to the 2010 case of McDonald v. v. Chicago. The clause would only protect an insignificant set of federal rights. To compensate for the deleted Privileges or Immunities Clause, the Supreme Court would gradually expand the scopes of the Due Process and Equal Protection Clauses far beyond their original meaning. Slaughterhouse remains good law today. Over a century later in 2010, Chicago residents invoked the Privileges or Immunities Clause in an appeal to the Supreme Court. They claimed that Chicago's ban on firearms abridged their right to keep and bear arms. And to reach that result, they urged the Supreme Court to reverse both Slaughterhouse and Crookshank. However, in McDonald versus Chicago in 2010, Chief Justice Roberts and Justices Kennedy, Scalia, and Alito declined that invitation. Instead, they relied on the court's expanded reading of the Due Process Clause. Only Justice Clarence Thomas cast his fifth and decisive vote based on the original meaning of the Privileges or Immunities Clause. So in this case, at least, the Privileges or Immunities Clause had a big impact. And next, we will be moving on to talking about the Militia Act of 1903. All right, next up, we have the Militia Act of 1903. Now, following the Spanish-American War, uh, steps to reform the army, including the National Guard, uh, were taken by advocates such as Charles Dick. He was a congressman and later senator from Ohio. He was also the chairman of the House Militia Affairs Committee and also served as the president of the National Guard. Uh, now, Dick championed the Militia Act of 1903, uh, which is how it has become known as the Dick Act. And this law repealed the Militia Act of 1792 and redefined the militia uh, per Title 10 of the U.S. Code, Section 311. So in 1903, the act defined the militia as every able-bodied male citizen of the reserved states of the, excuse me, every able-bodied male citizen of the respective state and the District of Columbia. Uh, dividing between the organized militia and the reserve militia. Uh, shortly thereafter, Congress passed an act to promote the efficiency of the reserve militia and to encourage rifle practice among the members thereof. The 1905 Reserve Militia Act was then expanded by a Military Appropriations Act in 1924. Uh, after being amended over the years, 
what began as the 1905 Reserve Militia Act is now uh, currently codified under Title 10 of the U.S. Code, uh, Section 4307 through 4313. So Title 10 of the U.S. Code, Section 311, uh, further stipulates that the militia consists of all able-bodied males between the ages of 17 and 45, both citizens and those who have declared their intent to become citizens, and of female citizens who are officers in the National Guard. It also specifies that the militia consists of two classes, the organized militia and the unorganized or reserve militia. Now, many states have similar statutes. Uh, those citizens who apply or who are called up for service and are accepted by a state militia are then part of the organized militia. All others eligible under the law are considered members of the unorganized militia and are still subject to call up by the state. Now, Title 10 of the U.S. Code clearly affirms the existence of the citizens militia, and it really is little change since the original Militia Act of 1792. Further, the individual right to own firearms is guaranteed by the Constitution, but the right to own firearms is not dependent on the Militia Clause. The Militia Clause of the Second Amendment merely adds to the reason for the right, uh, which is a common law right uh, rooted in the protection of self, family, and community. And this is a common law aspect that can be traced back at least as far as Magna Carta penned in 1215. So, for example, we have a quote here uh, from the case of Babington v. Yellow Taxi Corp., uh, where it is talking about the Statute of Winchester of 1285, talking about the duty that goes back to the days of the hue and cry to make pursuit effective uh, there were statutes in those early days whereby a man was subject uh, as a duty to provide himself with instruments sufficient to the task. A typical illustration is the statute of Winchester in which uh, for 15 pounds and goods there shall be kept a harquebus, a breastplate, a sword, a knife, and a horse. So still as in the days of Edward I, the citizenry may be called upon to enforce the justice of the state with whatever implements and faculties are convenient and at hand. Now, and for those of you who watched my series on the Founders' Second Amendment, uh, you will no doubt remember me talking all about uh, Tench Cox, who is uh, easily the most, pro the most prolific uh, source of legal and historical scholarship from among the founders uh, talking about the right to keep and bear arms and of the public militia power. And he explained the public militia power here in uh, this letter from the Democratic Press of 1823, where he says, enshrined in the Constitution is the right to own and to use arms and consequently of self-defense and of the public militia power. While the English game laws were used to disarm the populace here, firearms are the second and better right hand of every freeman. Having arms is sometimes a duty, but it is ever a right. So prudent, faithful, and provident have our people and constitution been that we find in their precious bills of rights, 
schedules of duties, and reasons of powers and declarations the right to own, keep, and use arms. Provisions preventing and forbidding the legislatures to interfere with and to abrogate that all-important right of the citizens. Uh, and one more uh, quote I want to look back to real quick from that series that you'll uh, remember if you've seen it uh, is one uh, by Richard Henry Lee uh, in his letters, uh, letter from a federal farmer. And he says, Whereas to preserve liberty, it is essential that the whole body of the people always possess arms and be taught alike, especially when young, how to use them. Nor does it follow from this that all promiscuously must go into actual service on every occasion. The mind that aims at a select militia must be influenced by a truly anti-republican principle. And when we see many men uh, disposed to practice upon it, wherever they can prevail, it is no wonder that true republicans are for carefully guarding against it. So, essentially, the Second Amendment guarantees an individual right to arms participation in a citizen militia organization does not make that right more valid nor any stronger and the first federal statutes governing the militia uh were the militia acts of 1792 while there were some revisions in 1795 and some more during the civil war uh that essentially uh, the dick act has played a part uh, it, uh, going right back to the earliest Second Amendment debates in the United States, uh, and since this act uh, plainly shows uh, the militia is not solely the National Guard. Uh, so far, uh, for this discussion of the right to keep and bear arms and of the general militia, uh, I mean, we've solely been discussing what is clearly an individual right. And as such, you may be asking yourself if the collective rights view was entirely unknown to the framers and didn't come from the creation of the National Guard a century later, why does anybody speak of it at all? And that is a handsome looking question. And to answer it, we're going to need to go back to a 1939 Supreme Court case uh, that paradoxically outright rejected the collective rights view, and that is U.S. v. Miller, and that's what we'll be talking about next. So, let's get into U.S. v. Miller. Now, in 1934, Congress passed the National Firearms Act. This was an act which required the registration of machine guns, sawed-off shotguns, and a few other arms. Now, Jack Miller was a member of a bootlegging gang, and he was caught with an unregistered shot-off shotgun. He was subsequently indicted, and his attorney moved to dismiss the indictment, uh, and the district judge quashed the indictment because, in his opinion, the NFA violated the Second Amendment. And using a procedure which then existed, the government appealed Miller's case directly to the Supreme Court. And when one digs into the clerk's records, you find some interesting anomalies with the case. For one thing, Miller's attorney was given no time to prepare a brief or show up for oral arguments. And, as a result, he did neither. But wait! There's more! Hang on to your seat, baby! Cause this one's a screamer! 
In fact, he sent a telegram suggesting that the court consider the case based on the government's brief. As such, it was only the government who submitted a brief or presented oral arguments. Now this gets us to why anyone would mistakenly believe that Miller was ruled a collective right. Because that was largely the case that was made by the government, both in their brief that they submitted as well as their oral arguments that they presented to the court. The only precedent the government ever pointed to was an obscure case uh, from 1905 that is known as Salinas v. Blakely, in which the Supreme Court of Kansas ruled that the right to keep and bear arms, as defined in the Kansas State Constitution, only protected a collective militia right. However, that ruling was actually revisited some years later and overturned by an act of their legislature, but regardless of that, a state constitutional issue is certainly something that the Supreme Court does not have any jurisdiction over. So when the court rendered its opinion, it said a couple of things. First, it said that the Second Amendment did have to be interpreted in a way that makes possible the continuation and efficacy of the militia. They included citations that went back all the way to the earliest days of the Republic, uh, showing that the militia was considered all able-bodied citizens in the community who were expected to show up uh, when serving in any capacity as the militia with their own weapons. Now, I realize many people may interpret this as needing to uh, show up to train and drill as a militia, which is actually part of it. But as I've already mentioned, uh, several areas in common law uh, where showing up to serve with private weapons includes such things as the hue and cry uh, and the fleeing felon rule, uh, as we talked about earlier uh, through standards such as Blackstone, as well as Richard Henry Lee, Tenshikok, and Justice Cardozo. Now, these common law principles are defined in law, uh, such as, as you see right here before you, Title 10 of the Code of the Federal Regulations, uh, Part 1047, Section 7, Paragraphs A1, A2, A5, and Paragraph B. Uh, and now I'm actually going to turn it over to a couple other very capable constitutional law scholars who are familiar with this case who are going to help me uh, explain the ramifications of it. What the, and the, the court then said that it was presented with no evidence and could therefore not take judicial notice of the fact that the particular kind of weapon the sawed-off shotgun for which Miller and Layton were indicted uh, for possessing was the kind of weapon that would be of use to uh, the militia. So the Supreme Court found in favor of an individual right, although it suggested that a person had to prove that the arms were suited for militia use. But when it did this, was the court aware of the Kansas Supreme Court's claim that the amendment only protected a National Guard-type unit? Government put forth in its argument to the Supreme Court in Miller in 1939 a version of the so-called collective rights argument. Most of the government's brief is devoted to saying the Second Amendment only protects the right of state militias to be armed. Uh, only a very small portion of their brief was devoted to making the argument that whatever the Second Amendment protects, it doesn't protect the right to possess a sawed-off shotgun. 
And the court rejected, or at least it didn't adopt, that collective rights position that was in the government's brief. And one has a hard time believing that it's, it's something they weren't aware of. After all, they only had one brief in the entire case to read. Uh, the Supreme Court uh, never adopted the collective rights theory in the, uh, in the Miller case. But later on, lots of federal courts adopted the habit of claiming that the Supreme Court had. What we have is the test in Miller taken by the court in cases, uh, Circuit Court of Appeals, uh, and the court finds the test in Miller unsatisfactory. The primary reason they find the court, uh, the test in Miller unsatisfactory is that it would, in the view of the Circuit Court, the Miller test would protect too many firearms. That is, uh, if the test is simply, could the firearm be uh, of some utility in uh, combat? Could the firearm be of some utility in the process of, of pursuing the uh, goals of the well-regulated militia? Um, the court answers yes, and the court essentially acknowledges that a broad range of firearms might have some significant utility uh, for those purposes, and that the only things that might be excluded are uh, the you know the arcane cap and ball rifle or the arcane flintlock. Uh, the court finds that as a policy matter unsatisfactory, and essentially abandons the Miller test. Well, that decision by the circuit court turns out to be the basis on which a number of the lower federal court decisions over the next 60 years uh, is grounded. And it's interesting because if you go through the um, Courts of Appeals opinions carefully, there's really no analysis of Miller. Uh, it just achieved the status of received wisdom. And sometimes they'll cite pages uh, to Miller uh, where this holding is supposedly uh, located, and if you go back and read Miller carefully, you see that there's nothing of the sort in the Miller opinion. Only recently with a Fifth Circuit decision, the Emerson case, and we found some judges really being willing to uh, focus very closely on all of the evidence and concluding that the right is an individual right. So now that the Fifth Circuit has held for an individual right and other circuits for states' right, now it may be that the Supreme Court will feel uh, compelled in the next several years to consider the issue because now it sees the split between the circuits, this disagreement among lower federal courts that it will have to resolve on a national basis. And as a matter of fact, uh, that's what they came because of the 2001 Emerson case that Eugene Volokh was talking about uh, is a case that was resolved just a couple of years later. And that was resolved in the 2008 case of District of Columbia v. Heller. And as a matter of fact, that is the next case that we will be talking about. You know, actually, this is where I'm going to wrap things up today. This video is already going a bit long, and I've still got several more cases to cover, so be looking out in the next day or two for a part two to this video. Uh, if you like my content, please take a moment and subscribe to the channel. I don't put out videos on a regular schedule right now, so that's the best way to make sure that you are always kept up to date on new releases. And feel free to smash that like button if you want, and if you have any thoughts at all about the episode, I would love to hear from you in the comments section. And finally, I would ask if you liked this particular episode, uh, it would mean a lot to me if you could just take a minute and share it with two other people who you think would also find it interesting. Uh, if you could help me grow the channel that way, I would really appreciate it. And if you hated this particular episode, I would ask you to take a minute and share it with two other people who you think might also hate it because well, I'm a masochist and your hate gets me off. So I will be back very soon with part two 
Until then, and as always, de linda es Carthago.